Hi everyone, welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. This episode is with Michael Russell. He is a geologist who works on the origin of life. Mike is an originator of the theory that life emerged at alkaline submarine hydrothermal vents. In this conversation, we talk about topics related to origin of life, hydrothermal vents, alien life, artificial life, and are there new life forms emerging now? Enjoy the conversation. Share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chitendra. Very good to see you. Yeah. So, um, I mean, of course, uh, we'll we'll talk more about origin of life and your ideas on it and how your theory is developing. But let's start with what do you find? What are the most interesting aspect of life, uh, according to you? Uh, the most interesting aspects of life to me are the uh, society's misunderstanding of what it is uh, and what we are. So, for example, I would say the absolutely outlandish statement to start with that uh, life is a, basically a slave of the universe. So, I mean, philosophically, people like to think of it as a great gift, and Feynman said just that, that it was a great gift, so that he could look in on the universe for a short lifetime and, and uh, see the wonders. But actually, most people don't do that and can't see it. They've even forgotten to look at the stars, uh, and uh, they're up against terrible problems. And wherever you look, at any time, life is extre- extremely difficult. So I think one has to have a philosophical view, which is basically stoical, to understand our place in life and and what we owe to others. So I like, I think it was another Levin saying that uh, the face is a kind of obligation, uh, but it must escape my powers. Just merely, we owe it to each other to look in each other's faces and do what we can for life, uh, because it's what so much a struggle. Uh, so how it came to be is uh, therefore not magical. It's just uh, an automatic outcome of the excruciating disequilibrium at the at the beginning of the universe, uh, which I don't like to call a big bang because I think that's you know really unfortunate phrase. But it's a beginning of space time, and everything kind of comes downhill from space time to even the smallest disequilibria. Uh, shall we say, one volt or less, being enough to generate life on this and perhaps any other similar planet or comparable planet. Uh, They'll be very rare, but I will say that life is likely to be common in the universe, but but rare. Uh, And certainly life like ours, uh, so-called intelligent life, is, is going to be rare indeed. And we're not going to find it because it doesn't last long enough. So major points are uh, the philosophical aspects of life, which, of course, people need to understand and explore. But apart from that, in general, uh, what you mentioned about life is the, the the way it originated. It's because of this dissection or disequilibria that you called, right? Yes. Uh, of course, we can we will uh, talk. We probably at the end of the conversation, we, maybe we can touch a little bit on philosophical aspects of it. But let's mm-hmm. uh, talk a little bit more about the science. Um, okay. So, because uh, I mean, first question which will uh, come is what creates the, that disequilibria? 
or uh, how that uh, you know ah. this this transition okay. like what is that uneven thing right okay so it's uh, what happens is from that uh, beginning of space time the universe is trying to relax and it'll try find any way it can so you know so it can work through galaxies work through gravity and so forth uh, and prior to life what i would say is uh, it's basically convection. So convection uh, is the system that we can just about all understand, I think. Uh, and of course, it's basically about heat transfer, uh, either in, in whatever material there happens to be that can obey the Rayleigh equation and actually break out and uh, start to convect. So that's the onset of convection is extremely important at all kinds of levels. And the very last part of convection, for example, on our planet, uh, because everybody I think now understands plate tectonics being an aspect of convection and, and thermal loss, uh, the byproducts of that are hydrothermal convection. And hydrothermal convection of, of, is of two main types, I would argue, uh, acidic high temperature, alkaline low temperature, roughly speaking. And that produces a chemical or geochemical disequilibria uh, that life basically exploits to this day. So if you turn off convection, if you actually could turn off convection, you would eventually turn off life because you need to have life, not only to uh, convection, not only as a feeder, but also to get rid of the waste. And I think that that second point is so often overlooked. How do you get rid of the waste? And it is all, of course, all about waste. It's the entropic output that the universe actually wants, turns us into slaves to do that. Uh, and they're slaves of all kinds of, of matter. And I'm sorry, I, I know I sound philosophical, but the fact is it all joins together in my mind uh, that getting rid of the waste you know, we're supposed to make waste. I mean, the whole point about the universe is it wants to generate entropy, it wants us to make waste, and that's the kind of thing we have to fight philosophically and politically, actually, even, to understand this. And right down at the emergence of life, it, it's very clear that you, you need to have a system, engineer, have a system that's engineering, that can, that can work off from everything that's around itself. It mustn't be given anything, it must merely have it given to it on a plate, it must be there on a plate, so to speak, uh, the free energy, all the materials required, nothing needs to come in from space on bolides or anything like that, it's got to be absolutely contained uh, system. Uh, and I think that that's generally overlooked, and it's about making the waste. So basically, life is a byproduct of making waste. So it's all about the waste we, we generate. And of course, I invite everybody in these circumstances, just think about the waste they've produced in their lifetime and pile it in a room or two rooms or 15 rooms or a hotel because it's gigantic waste. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a, I mean, this is again uh, really um, important to, to think about entropy in terms of uh, life, of course. Oh. Um, but but just to go back to the to the point that you uh, mentioned, so so the convection is mainly, or the way I'm thinking is, it's like the energy of, uh, in relation to the time, right? Or this right. is how we can we can think exactly. of it. So it's the thermal energy is being dissipated through convection, and the paradox is that it leaves chemistry or geochemistry in the lurch. It leaves chemistry far from equilibrium because it takes material from deeper within the planet, which is uh, electron rich, 
and distributes it towards the surface, and the surface is, is relatively electron poor. So the electrons want to find a way out. And the way they find a way out basically is through life. Uh, life is the distributor of these electrons, a quick distributor. Uh, otherwise, the distribution of the electrons to, uh, to the atmosphere, and to the ocean, to the, to the surface of the planet is extremely slow. And so, of course, what uh, far from equilibrium systems do uh, is that they quicken these processes by orders and orders of magnitude. Yeah. So the but but what I'm trying to understand is like how that. Uh, so, for example, what I understand from my conversations with other physicists and stuff is the is the fact that at least um, till the time a star is born, the universe remains fairly simple, right? Um, it's mainly hydrogen all around, uh, can be electrons, etc. But once a star is formed, uh, just because of the gravity and uh, and a lot of heat, we can start uh, seeing this increasing in complexity. I mean, uh, or at some point, let's say we'll we'll get uh, our periodic table, right? Yes, <laughs> in a way. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, the complexity is an often a carelessly used word. You know, things don't just become more complex. There are uh, mechanisms to make uh, everything more complex and in stages. And each stage is a kind of an engineering process, actually. Uh, and, it, and each stage has to generate more entropy than the stage before. So complexity is something to be worried about deeply. Uh, and one of the things I would like to bring in at this state, although I'm not uh, paying entirely your agenda, uh, I'm afraid, is that uh, the idea of the hyperobject. Are you familiar with the hyperobject? No. Okay, a hyperobject is something that is just so extraordinarily uh, complex that we need to look at it from every point of view available to the human mind. Uh, and we don't do that generally. We say, right, I'm a chemist, I'll fix it. Or I'm a physicist, I'll fix it. Or, you know, if, or I'm a physical chemist. I'll be able to fix it because I'm a physical chemist, not just a chemist, etc. But in fact, it's bigger and bigger and bigger than that. Uh, and it needs a mind uh, that encapsulates Jackson Pollock's, uh, Beethoven's, Charlie Parker's, and uh, and I'm I'm being very Western here, by the way, I admit. <laughs> uh, and uh, and Van Gogh, these people actually have a extraordinary understanding that we can only just glimmer. Uh, and that those are the kind of minds, and the scientific mind has to be similar, I would argue. And we tend to be, oh, no, I'm a scientist. I've got to be very careful in the lab and so forth. And, and uh, what's my precision? And what's my, uh, you know, uh, how accurate I am? But do we ever really do that with ourselves every morning and every night, over going over the day? What did I do? What, 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 what was wrong? How can I recalibrate? Do we recalibrate this primary instrument of science? And generally, we don't. We don't even care about doing that. We don't think it's a moral problem issue, I should say. Yeah. We don't think it's a moral issue. The whole thing. So that's why I'm, you know, you can call me philosophically if you like, but to me, it's all connected, absolutely all connected. And you can't think, one cannot think without having a moral aspect of the world. Yeah, the the thing is that, uh, or let's say that when I was talking to uh, Peter Atkins, uh, he mentioned something interesting that, of course, like uh, 
as scientists, we plan a system. Of course, it's in a kind of isolated way, or we try to think of that system in an isolate, uh, isolated way. We take our observations and we try to apply these observations to this bigger picture, you know, to kind of understand uh, everything that we have around us, right? Um, but but we want that controlled system because uh, this is how we can make uh, better observations, right? Um, else there'll be too many variables and we'll, we won't be able to uh, kind of get uh, get to it. What, what, what do you think about it? Uh, well, I, I would quote John Lennon uh, and say, uh, life is what happens when you're making other plans. That the, the planning is very dangerous in science. And of course, it's what everybody should do because, you know, you've got to go to school, you've got to go to university, you've got to have a good job, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You know, Bob Dylan tells you the whole thing. You know, uh, 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. No, I think you have to be thinking right down without kind of right within oneself uh, with total respect for the wonder of the universe uh, and 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 let the universe carry you towards what you do. I'm not against doing experiments. Please don't think so. But I think that experiments uh, are you know, you have to think incredibly hard before you do any kind of experiment. Uh, and you can't just go and become a PhD student and, and do somebody's experiment because they happen to be the boss. You know, it's hopeless. You know, most, you know, it's no accident that most uh, major innovations happen out with the society. You know, they happen away from the captain's table. They happen where you can have ordinary conversations without any fear of being reported upon. You know, it's a... Uh, it's radical. It's deeply radical. Yeah. And also, I mean, the fact that so many discoveries, they were made because of we missed something or, you know, like uh, penicillin. And, and there are many examples to it, right? Uh, that the that the that these discoveries, they happened because there was some mistake or uh, someone, yeah. you know, forgot something in the lab and came back next day and checked it. And uh, there it was. <laughs> um, well, partly because people have the wrong uh, motivations, mostly. I remember uh, this uh, outlandish scientist who was a surfer who uh, discovered the, the polymerase chain reaction or in uh -huh. his mind. I don't know if you know, what's his name? Kiri or Kesey or something? What's his name? I, anyway, I, also, I, also I think he's from San Diego. Okay, and he's a surfer and he's kind of hippie. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's worth knowing about this fellow. Okay, so his discovery was absolutely extraordinary. He was going to his ranch up in Northern California from San Diego on a, on a Friday night, and he's going over a hill on the way on the, on the Highway 1, I think it was, uh, and it suddenly just flashes in his mind how to do it, how to do the polymerase chain reaction, just like that. Uh, and of course, he got the Nobel Prize almost immediately, and he says he remembers going to a conference uh, and putting up his poster uh, just after he had the idea. And he saw all the big guys, all the great, the good, coming up and looking at the poster and going away. Like <laughs> they, couldn't, they, could, they couldn't say, wow, man, that's fantastic. Well done. It's just wonderful to see this. What creativity. None of them did. They were all just dead jealous and hated them. That's what life's like. And that's, what, that's why I'm uneasy about planning and suggestions from the great and the good. It's much deeper and nastier and messier than that. Uh, so we need to understand uh, systems as hyper objects, 
hyperobjects are so complex that we need to look at them from absolutely every point of view. So to me, I can't do without Jackson Pollock because of his mind. I can I can feel his mind. That's that's the mind we need to have. We're far from equilibrium. The mind has to be far from equilibrium, but relatively constrained. And most yeah. people are overly constrained and not very far from equilibrium because they want a nice life. So it is philosophy. Yes, that, that's my method. Yeah. So the n- name of the guy is uh, Gary Mullis. Yes, that's it. Yeah, Gary yeah, that's yeah. The... yeah. I mean, nobody likes him. You know, yeah. he, he was anti-AIDS. You know, he was anti this and that. He was crazy. You know, it's but you've got to be crazy. Okay, so let's uh, let's go back to um, where we were. So about the about the origin of life. So the idea of um, hydrothermal. I want to call it the emergence. I want to call it the emergence of life because emergence I want to of life. Interesting. Yes. Evolution. It it does make sense. Yeah. So the the idea of hydrothermal vents itself. So how um, how it started. How do you how how did you like come to this conclusion that maybe this is something which can be the chapter one of biology? Well, everybody when they're young, or many people when they're young, are interested in the origin of life. They're interested. But uh, I was nothing more than that. And I'd heard about the idea of Miller because he'd been on the front time of Time magazine and so forth. And I hadn't given it much thought. But uh, I had a very isolated childhood. so, which always leaves an, an, an only child. Uh, so it always leaves you pondering, <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? Uh, anyway, from uh, I always wanted to be an explorer, I guess. I, I, I love books. I love to read books, all kinds of books. Uh, but many of them, I'm going to break off for a moment. You know, How did Darwin get his grant? How did he get his grant? How did he get what was equivalent of something like uh, half a billion dollars to go around South America? He was just he was just a kid. He was 20 years old. How did that happen? How did he get his grant? Do you know how he got his grant? Uh, no. Well, it's an aspect of British colonialism. They were worried about uh, this. This all matters. You see, everything matters. They were worried that Brits were worried about all of Spanish and, and uh, Spanish speaking countries in the Southern Hemisphere, and they thought they better go and check it out. So they had a ship going round and ostensibly doing science, and they did do science because that's what the, the Brits are quite good at doing that. They always kind of hoist something on the back of what they really want to do, okay? So, uh, because then they can say, right, well, this is what we did, whereas, you know, actually this is what we really did because now we know more about South America and we know about the trade routes and we know about this and that. Okay, that's how he got his ground, okay? So I'm, I was born in Britain at the, towards the end of the British Empire, right at the end, you know, and, and, uh, and quite right too, so to speak. You know? uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, that gave me huge advantages, which I have to recognize. Uh, and it would be, un, you know, it's much more difficult for somebody in Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia at that time in 1950, to think like that because they haven't had the opportunity to work in the Solomon Islands and Africa and Canada because I had an easy ride because I was, wanted to be an explorer and I could get, I could do these things because uh, I was born lucky, frankly. So that's why uh, you know, it, it's, it's, <laughs> you can't be too self-satisfied about life if you realize the advantages you've had. And, and the disadvantages that play well towards an advantage. 
you know, so I had lots of disadvantages. And of course, the disadvantages are very useful because they're the constrictions. So to me, this is my method. I went exploring. Well, the first thing I did, actually, I went to work. I tried to get a job and I got a job in a chemistry factory. Now, I could have worked in a carpet factory, truly, but it was a chemistry factory. And my job was to, to hydrogenate phenols to cyclohexanols with nickel catalysts uh, under hydrogen pressure at, uh, at about uh, 80 degrees centigrade, actually quite low temperature, maybe 120, I can't remember. So, I, so I, I knew about hydrogenation, I knew about nickel, I knew about catalysts, I knew about the fineness of requirements for, for catalysis. You know, I, I was a chemist, I didn't do chemistry much, I did a bit, a bit at the university, but not much, but I was a chemist. You know, I actually did this stuff. I saw it catch a light. I knew that if you breathed in these fumes, it would kill you. Uh, and, and that, that it was very dangerous in the sh in the sh on the shop floor. And so I knew all these things. I had respect for the people who worked in these things with all those terrible vapors and so forth. These are all about method, understanding method, having the respect to understand that the smartest person in the room and the one that's probably most significant is the technician. They're the ones that need the time, etc. Just like the school teacher is the most important uh, professional probably in, in the world. And the, but we don't treat them like that. Anyway, that's kind of some knowledge. And it's, and it's knowledge that's useful in the lab. So it meant that I could, I knew, I could respect everybody in the lab uh, and really respect them. I mean, not just how you're getting on, pal, you know, actually have a good sense of what their lives were like because I'd been there. And then I went to work in the Solomon Islands and, and had a wonderful time living in, uh, basically a post-colonial world that still uh, where the people in the colonies didn't kill you. Uh, you know, which is, you know, and eventually, of course, they would want to clear you out, understandably. I mean, I, I get it, but that gave me earthquakes. It gave me plate tectonics before plate tectonics, because I knew whatever anybody was saying, I knew that uh, the earthquakes went down to 600 kilometers. And I knew they went down what's called a Benioff zone. I knew all that. I knew that the, the, uh, the uh, I, I saw all the hot springs. I looked at all the mineral deposits. Uh, I had an idea they were that, that the minerals came out of hot springs because I saw them in the Solomon Islands. Uh, nothing, I, nothing in the discoveries of the 60s was strange to me because I had, <clears throat> I'd actually felt it. I'd been there, I was a kid. I was a kid. I didn't know any better. Everything was obvious. As, as Einstein says, you know, it's better to be ignorant most of the time. Uh, take, take the knowledge away, take the books away and just think, think, think and have experiences. So that's, that's how I started to think these kind of things. And uh, you know, so I, so what am I, what's in my, what's in my, uh, what's in my deep freeze? What's in the deep freeze of my brain? Uh, convection, Catalyst, nickel, finding nickel, looking for nickel deposits and realizing that's where the nickel comes from for the catalyst, making it fine, that hydrogen, hydrogenations, uh, hot water. I had it all. And when somebody like Jack Corliss comes along, who I totally admire, by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jack Corliss, but he had this idea that life started at hot spring, okay, very hot spring. Uh, and of course, he couldn't publish because everybody hated it. Uh, and in fact, they, I could say they basically close to destroyed his life. The, 
I mean, that's that's what human beings are like. You know, we're basically we're in the jungle, and so we need to know who are the jungle folks and who aren't basically. And mostly they're in the jungle and it's occupied. The jungle is occupied. So you only have to have a very few people who are wise enough to know that and not to get sucked in to deal with and work with. So those become your collaborators. And to me, Jack Corliss, I never actually, I knew him pretty well and I never collaborated with him, but I admired him because I met, I met him in, in field work and so forth. He's a great guy. I could tell you many stories about him, but uh, basically they got rid of him, and he, and he eventually ended up in Hungary uh, as uh, an economic advisor to the Hungarian government. He's that smart. He's a geologist, and he's that smart. Uh, and he said this, you know, that basically he predicted the the hot springs at the the black smokers. He predicted the black smokers, and he predicted them by looking at the hot springs in the Galapagos, underneath the Galapagos, with a friend of his called uh, uh, Edmund. I, I also knew John Edmund. I knew him as well. Uh, I was lucky enough to know these people. And, and it's partly I knew them because they were ordinary folks who were just brilliant. And so nobody cared to play around with them because they were kind of annoying, useful, but annoying. Uh, they didn't play the game properly. Uh, I would say that John Edmund was uh, came from Glasgow, which is where I worked for a long time, and he was a Golden Gloves uh, boxer. Uh, but they predicted that the 17 degrees centigrade water coming out of the Galapagos vents was basically from a fluid that was 350 degrees centigrade on the basis of the of the magnesium and and, and uh, uh, calcium and uh, silica results. And two years later, they discovered the black smokers. And it wasn't the great and the good that discovered the black smokers because the great and the good went down on the submarine and Alvin time after time and they couldn't find it. So they finally said, well, we better give it to this girl, PhD student, whatever it's called, Rachel Harmon. And that down she goes and she discovers them. Oh no. So that's the way the world is. You know, that's the way the world is anyway. I mean, it's just walking the street, you know, that's the way the world is. And so you have to have that wisdom and understanding. You can call it philosophy. I don't. I think I call it survival. But the first person to suggest this really was, uh, and I'm going to forget his name, but I think his name was Edwards, but I'm not sure. 1924, you'll find it in science. Uh, and in science, in 1924, this fellow said, looking at hot springs in uh, Yellowstone National Park. I don't know if you know this, do you? I know this one. Okay. That, yeah, life started here. It was hot enough. There was plenty of chemicals and so forth. And of course, everybody forgot about it, but it was a great idea. So, you know, so I knew these things and I, well, I didn't know that, by the way, but I did know about chemical gardens. I played with my children, chemical gardens. I knew about the, the scientists of the 1880s. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that letter by Marx, uh, by Karl Marx. Uh, saying how wonderful Traub, this scientist Traub was for realizing that you could take a membrane that was inorganic uh, and therefore you didn't need to have God anymore in 19, in 1875, in a letter. So this, so, so yeah, I'm intellectual. I like to know as much as I can about the world, but actually it's because you have those knowledge, you can bring it in as you wish. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm beginning to pontificate now, but you know, my question is, what don't I need to know? What don't I need to know? You know, I need to know as much as I can about 
the physics and chemistry and, and the philosophy and the science and the history. It all tells stories. And the stories are stories. And we're telling a story. And science is a kind of story. But we like to think that it's well, well ensconced in good ground. Based on observations. So, so when did this uh, discovery of alkaline hydrothermal vents uh, happen? I think it's fair to say we predicted it. So you're, if, you know, in our uh, 18, uh, 1989 paper, we suggested that alkaline vents into an, a carbonic ocean would generate iron sulfide membranes and would be culture chambers for life. Uh, so it, it was actually, and I think, you know, it's, it's almost all there. I think it's almost e including the protomotive force, as I recall. But certainly by 1994, we had it totally together. And 1997, we did, it took us three years to get it published, but we did our, I did that paper with Alan Hall, 1997 in Geological Society of London. They didn't want, they didn't want that paper uh, because they thought it should go to geochemical, cosmochemical, but I wanted to put it into ge geology because I thought ignorantly that people would take it seriously because it was geologically based uh, but actually nobody did uh, in that way but it did predict alkaline vents and they were discovered eventually in, in uh, the year 2000 December 2000 so we like to say that was we would like to say that's a major prediction uh, and it really can't be gainsaid uh, we got we've got lots of things wrong by the way so I'm not it's not but that we got that right uh, and there it is with the proton body force, uh, redox. Uh, uh, and we had the iron nickel sulfides because of my experience in the factory. Uh, and what had happened was I went to see a, a student uh, of students in Ireland in, in uh, 1980 or 90, yeah, 1980, I think it was. And I knew about Jack Corliss's, well, black smokers, they'd just been discovered. So I went there and I said to my students, there must be black smokers here. And uh, because I was looking at a big ore deposit and I thought that was produced by one of these hydrothermal hot springs. And one of my students said, what would they look like, Mike? And I took the pen top off my pen and I say, well, they, they look like this, but they'd be made of iron parietes. And my student said, I got a million of those. And within 10 minutes, we had, well, hundreds of these structures. Uh, so we were very excited. We thought we'd discovered the first ever black smokers, fossil black smokers, big deal. Uh, but in fact, the, uh, the opposition said, were laughing at us because ours, you know, theirs were little chimneys like this. Don't you know that black smokers are huge? Uh, so we felt embarrassed. Uh, but we still thought, because we had sulfur isotopes to work on, that we were on the right lines. And by 1995, one of my students found a fossil worm in one of these chimneys. So we really were pretty happy, although everybody else said they were stalactites. And who, uh, who was the opposition? The whole of the... the who wasn't the opposition? It's, it's always like that. Who wasn't the opposition? But that's the fascinating part of the discoveries as well right the new ideas they are always i mean i don't know it's then again goes to the philosophy part of the science uh, philosophy of no, science goes, no it goes and to the fact that we're naked apes and we're jealous 
and we, we really want to kill the opponents. And you can see it in the grimaces of people in the audience when you give a lecture sometimes. Well, now do this. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Just to put you off. It's all part of the technique, a, the a technique. You know, we learn to yawn for these things. So you've got, you know, as a scientist, you've got to be able to weather that. Uh, but the next thing to happen was really pretty extraordinary to my mind. And that is, and you may know the story, I don't know, but I was playing with my children and I was making chemical gardens. Uh, and I was ignorant. I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't know how it, I mean, I should have known, but I didn't. Uh, and it was my son that you probably know the story in the yelled out from the bathroom where he locked the door when he broke them up. He said, Hey dad, these things are hollow. And suddenly we realized our chemical gardens and that would give you the first membrane. And actually I still believe that. I still think that those thin spires are actually the prototype for a cell. Uh, they're strung out because you need to have a lot of materials coming in and you can't do it in a little nice round cell. You've got to have a lot of wall. You've got to have a lot of membrane to deal with, but it's got to be very thin on the inside. The water, the water uh, activities have got to be very, very low, uh, extremely low in the membrane. Very, you know, in fact, you, you've got bound water in the membranes. In, organ in, in organic membranes and pretty low water activity in the channel ways as you build up organic molecules. So that's, that's the way it came to be. Uh, and we got a review yesterday, uh, my collaborator saying, uh, uh, misspelling my name, of course, saying, oh, well, uh, uh, I don't think you need to worry about Mike Russell's old fashioned theory. There's new theories in town. Uh, and of course, they're all about, uh, they're not geological to my mind, but they're all about surfaces and, uh, and the lovely sunny days in the Hadean period uh, when the earth was spinning at twice its present rate and the moon was 30,000 kilometers away and the waves were 10 meters high and the, if, and the, and the Volcanoes were getting washed away all the time. And somehow or other, this Darwin's little pond. It wasn't Darwin's little pond. He was like Marx. You know, don't, you know what Marx said on his deathbed? I am not a Marxist. <laughs> and Darwin said, you know, I don't, that's, it's, you, it's too soon. You can't talk about little ponds. He'd actually said that. It's written down in his, uh, is a note in his book. Uh, the, the, the year after he wrote that, thing about the Darwin's warm little pond, but because it's nice, it's easy. You don't have to worry about hyper objects if you've got a little pond. Yeah, and the other, I mean, we can, it's good to have different theories, right? But we'll, we also somehow need That depends to... if they're theories or not. Yeah. Are they theories or are they hypotheses or are they just ideas from off the wall? Yeah, but- Theory has to encompass the entirety just about the entirety of the knowledge at that time, a good theory. Einstein could yeah. do that five in one year because he didn't have any, uh, there were no uh, referees for his papers. When he got to the United States, he couldn't believe that somebody else was going to read his papers before they were published. <laughs> but you think he could have published that in America in 1905? Of course not. It had to be in a, the gray literature. 
That's where most of these things are found. And that's where I read. I read the gray literature. And of course, I publish in the gray literature because that's often what's left to me. Yeah. So let's say that if there are some uh, great theories, uh, but still... Show me a great uh, theory. Show me one great theory. I mean, the, so, I mean, I definitely like the hydrothermal vents theory because uh, for me, it makes but sense. Tell me another. You said you put, you talk, the, you talk in the plural. Tell me another. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, I, I also, I'm trying to think the other, other theories. I, I know the ideas about the RNA world hypothesis, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still, I think the, uh, we start with the more complex objects there. It's not like the, like as simple as hydrothermal vents theory. Uh, th that's definitely the case. Um, uh, and of course, we can make uh, cases against the RNA world hypothesis, membranes, uh, first views, etc. But then the, 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 the still the, the, the question is um, how we kind of combine everything, right? And this is why I like hydrothermal vents theory in a way, um, because it also includes this uh, the, the conditions which were present at that time. But the question is how precise are we to kind of uh, understand the, the environment or the preconditions, uh, the, the conditions which were there um, at the formation of the planet, right? Well, I think that that, to me, you see, as a geologist, that's a very easy answer. Uh, we can understand convection. We know how it works. We know that, you know, often it's a, a magmatic uh, pod at 700 to 1,000 degrees that can produce very hot springs, uh, <clears throat> super uh, volatile, 410 degrees centigrade, that uh, when they come out generally if they're water they're about 410 degrees centigrade so you that's that you can that's all of physics and the chemistry will tell you that there's there's no way out of that and that you keep on finding these black smokers in fact people spend their careers looking for more black smokers i think we've got enough black smokers thank you very much let's look for some more alkaline springs <clears throat> anyway and we for the alkaline springs well we know that serpentinization generates alkaline fluids around about 100 to 150 degrees centigrade maximum. Uh, and we know that the interaction between those fluids and uh, a carbonic ocean with plenty of protons coming into the ocean, uh, protons coming into the ocean from, uh, from those other hot springs and from volcanoes and so forth, you've got that disequilibria. This, I, don't, I can't see any way out of a disequilibria. It's redox and pH uh, to give you a, an equivalent to just about a volt or just under a volt, which is what life needs. And it doesn't need hard photons to get it going because it we know we lie on the beach and we die. And um, how does this? Maybe that's an experiment. Yes, it by is. The way. It is. But how this uh, disequilibria is created at the hydrothermal vents? Well, the disequilibria is created because the fluid, the alkaline fluid from which came originally from the ocean, comes through, serpentinizes the crust, and becomes alkaline. Uh, and highly reduced, it's got hydrogen, probably some methane, maybe some formate, molybdenum uh, in it, uh, not many other metals, but molybdenum, maybe some tungsten. And it comes out and it interfaces, just like Traub in 1870 pointed out, it interfaces a fluid that's carbonic uh, 
with some metals in it, in fact, uh, iron especially, but a bit of zinc and, and cadmium and cobalt and so forth. And they precipitate just like that, pretty instantaneously. So they keep the two fluids apart. So the two fluids are kept far from equilibrium. So, you know, you're looking through a glass wall at, a, at the beautiful world and you can't get out. You know, you're in a, you're in a jail uh, and the only thing you can do, you can pass things through the bars, so to speak. You, and what do they pass? You can, the only things you can pass through the bars are protons one way and electrons the other. And then maybe a little bit of uh, organic material here and there and, and so forth, but very small amount. So that's how the disequilibrium is spent. So that's why you could say why Van Gogh was so much better an artist than Gauguin, really, uh, was because he really was frustrated. He knew so much. You know, he knew. He painted the first galaxy. You know, his in, in Starry Starry Night, that's M21, the Whirlpool Galaxy. Now, that's the, he's the first person to see it like that, to understand it as a far from equilibrium system. Like the rest of it, like the like the uh, the trees, like everything else in that picture except the church steeple. Yeah. So the and the this uh, disequilibria is created because of uh, because this simply the metal surfaces they act as a membrane or or what? Well, the, the, the membrane is there. It's a given. You don't have to go and find it. It doesn't have to come around from space. It happens like that. And the, and the system lasts for about 10 to the 21 nanoseconds, which is 30,000 years or maybe a, uh, 100,000, maybe more even. But let's just say that it's plenty of time because life had to start fast. Otherwise, it wouldn't start at all. So, uh, you know, to my mind, it would you should be counting in nanoseconds, just like the engineers should be looking at nano uh, exactly. nanometers. Yeah. Nanometrics. It's all down at the fine scale. We've got to think like that. We've got to think down at the fine scale of time and space. So the disequilibrium is no problem because the disequilibrium still is the same. Life still lives off these kind of disequilibrium: the sulfate, the nitrate, and electron acceptors, the carbon dioxide, even as electron acceptors. Now, you know, once life had figured out how to do that. But I don't think it figured, and so that's why I disagree with Bill Martin and possibly with uh, Nick Lane. I don't, it was too hard to, to reduce CO2 right off. You'd need to do something else. So you can reduce it. Everybody knows you can reduce it to formate, but it gets very difficult after that to reduce it under, under reasonable circumstances. So yeah, formate, okay, that's, that's one start. That's one, that's one part of the acetylcoenzyme synthase pathway. But why would the other half of this acetylcoenzyme pathway, instead of using just one step to go from carbon dioxide to acid to uh, formate, why would it go five steps to a methyl group? I mean, how can it be so ugly? So that's where Van Gogh comes in and the artists come in, understanding aesthetics. The aesthetics is part of the brain the way the brain works. And to my mind, it's too ugly, the system, the acetylcoenzyme synthase pathway. I know I published that with Bill Martin and, and, and I'm, it was okay, but I soon realized, I, I soon became very uncomfortable with it. Uh, and eventually in, by 2010, I was, well, 2009, actually I was out, you know, I couldn't, I didn't believe it anymore. 
because why give up on something that was God-given, so to speak, methane? You know, that's not just a fuel, it's an organic molecule for free, and it's coming out of the hydrothermal vents. And if you oxidize methane to a methyl group, Bob's your uncle, and you've got your acetylcoenzymase, which is actually symmetrical and uses both reduced carbon and oxidized carbon. So it's a good start. Now, of course, everybody, I think I'm fair to say, everybody hates that. But if I would talk to you and you know, know any better, it's not a bad idea. Yeah, so, but this is what uh, basically methanogens they are using, right? So they are Methanotrophs. fixing. Yeah, methanotrophs, that they are uh, using uh, exactly. methane to- Exactly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. nitrate is the electron acceptor. They don't have to use sulfate. They don't have to be in this kind of community. They can use nitrate, nitric oxide, and so forth as an electron acceptor. And it seems to, to me very simple to start as a methanotroph and turn into a methanogen than the other way around. But what about the uh, role of oxygen and carbon dioxide here? Because we, or at least this is what we know that the or the levels of oxygen they arose uh, quite later, after uh, after a couple of billion years, right? Well, we don't have to worry about that because we've got nitric oxide and nit nitrate uh -huh. and nitrite. So that you can breathe that. I mean, having oxygen in the atmosphere is, you know, we're, I'm talking about, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the emergence of photosynthesis. Of course I am. And I've published on that. But the real problem is how do we get, I mean, to me, the problem is not metabolism or even a guided metabolism. The guided, the, the problem really is how to turn uh, a mineral constituted metabolism into something that has a, an algorithmic code. And that's actually, as Sarah Walker and, and Davis point that out, that's the real difficulty. I think we, we've got over, to my mind, we've got over the metabolism problem. We've got over the emergence of metabolism. And we think it has to be guided right from the very beginning, of course. You can't, everything has to be guided to some extent, but it's not guided well enough. And we do, do need to get to a, a peptide, nucleotide world yeah so that's that's the issue to me and people are still worrying about the pond you know or and wet dry cycles i mean it's it's ludicrous what these people are worrying about you know the real issue is right there in front of us uh and if only people would be generous enough to admit some parts of science then they could get on with it because i i have reached my level of ignorance it's the Peter principle. I'm now incompetent to work further. Yeah, but at least you've given us the 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 base to it, um, and of course now people should build uh, build on it. So, but what you're trying, uh, what you're saying is that we, it's not only the hydrogen carbon dioxide that we should focus on. It's the also protons. the. Uh, I'm sorry. And the protons. Yeah. I mean that was pretty good. I think getting the proton motive force explained. I mean, mm -hmm. otherwise, that was a gigantic puzzle. Yeah. How could you invent the protomotive force and ATPase? I mean, yeah, you didn't have to. Yeah. Then now it can only it can be done with the metal surfaces, right? And where it's basically the iron sulf sulfur clusters. But you are no, saying that yeah, no, it's the well, okay, that's what we used to say, uh, mm -hmm. and that's still significant because you might have seen a paper by Hudson, two thousand and nineteen. Mm -hmm. in PNAS that shows you actually can reduce uh, carbon dioxide to formate with a proton motive force of 
of uh, two units, which of course is is the key. Something like uh, what the equivalent of 120 volts, I guess, millivolts. So you can. So that's done. But in fact, we think it's the the real precipitate, uh, and that's the mistake I made, by the way. You know, so because I'm absolutely buried in sulfides. I looked at mineral sulfide deposits. I mean, my big job, my job was to look for mineral sulfide deposits. So of course I tend to think of sulfides, sulfides, sulfides. And it took me a long time to get around to realizing that it was green rust, that it was this new mineral called fujerite, which after all makes the banded iron formations, which uh, gives, our, gives us our uh, economic well, technical world today, all these gigantic iron formations. And they were probably mostly green rust. So you didn't have any problem about the origin of the green rust. And we know the green rust can, it can reduce nitrate to ammonia, eight electrons. Now you can't, you, there's not an enzyme that can do that. You need nitrate reductase and nitrite reductase to do that. But green rust can do it both. <clears throat> and it can also do the nitrate reductase and uh, nitrite to nitro, nitric oxide and so forth. So you can do all that and it can aminate it can, once you've got the ammonia, you can aminate pyruvate to an amino acid and oxalate to, to alanine and an oxalate to glycine. Now, all the RNA people love glycine and alanine. I mean, they like other things as well, of course, but they do realize that you've got to have something like pretty malleable, like a, a glycine to get started. So I don't, and, we, and our next, you know, so our challenge now, is how can we oxidize methane with green rust? Okay, so that's our challenge. That's a standing challenge, and we put it out there. If we if you can't do that, we could be wrong. But if you can, we can keep thinking. What is the composition of uh, green rust? It's ferrous ferric oxyhydroxide. Okay. Unfortunately, in the nano world, everybody calls it a layered double hydroxide. Now, I don't know where that, well, I presume that comes from the fact that often you've got an OH twice or, or whether you've got two elements in the, in the layered double hydroxide. There are layered double hydroxides, but green rust is not one of them. It's a, dub, it's a double layered hydroxide. It's got two layers. One is aqueous, but very, very, but with bound water and anions, which are there and can change because and be reduced or oxidized because the intellect that the other layer have ferric ferrous and they are exchangeable you can go from fer all ferrous in a layer to all ferric in a layer as long as you're fast and go back and forth just like an enzyme in fact better than an enzyme in a sense you can go right from the ferrous to the ferric whereas generally in the enzyme you're stuck with going partly ferrous to ferric and admittedly to to iron four uh, and so we now, another challenge for us is, can you really get to iron four in green rust? Well, uh, you know, that's a big order. So if you could do that, uh, that might actually uh, silence some of the audience. Yeah, so, um, so but still, it seems like the iron is important just because probably it's... Um, it's There's so much of it. Or, it's it's around. You can't. You don't have to go and find any of this stuff. You don't even have to find molybdenum and tungsten. You've got to have molybdenum or tungsten. You know, life has to have that. But it comes, and everybody says, "Oh, there's not much of it." But it comes out of alkaline vents. 
Yeah. So what I'm uh, what I'm getting here is that uh, I mean, because of course, from broader perspective, all of all of you you agree, right? Uh, Bill Martin, uh, like the the life is um, originating or originating or emerging, uh, as you mentioned, uh, at um, hydrothermal vents or alkaline hydrothermal vents. It's yeah. just that uh, it's the chemical space that you. We don't guys... always reference that anymore, by the way. Bill Martin is careful trying not to reference that. Okay. So, uh, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that uh, all all of you guys that you agree on on uh, quite a lot of things, but I think it's just the chemical space that you guys disagree about that, that, that there we was disagree. a lot of... We disagree on engines. Yeah, exactly. They think it's chemistry and yeah. we think it's engines. And mm -hmm. it's a major disagreement. You can't put the two together. No, that Bill Martin's group wants to say, let's look for a bridge between... Uh, all the uh, nice people who are working on uh, wet dry cycles and so forth. Let's get a common language and so forth. And so the chemists can talk to the other people and so forth. It's impossible. There is no bridge to be had. There's a complete distinction between chemistry going downhill and engines that can drive things uphill from disequilibria. And with Nick Lane? Uh, I think he, he quite likes some of this, but he just doesn't want, he doesn't like green rust or so he tells me. Okay. I mean, that's, that's still fine. Or according to me, I mean, of course it's, it's still the, um, uh, you know, settling down at the chemical space or as you mentioned. It has to be, it has to be, we would say it has to be green rust and it has to operate as a, a nano engine. Otherwise we are wrong, but people have to disprove that because it's got a, quite a lot going for it. No, we, I mean, major reactors, reactions at the bottom of the cycle, at the, the pathway, and even at the bottom of the, the, the reverse Krebs, the very bottom, can be done through green rust. Now, somebody like uh, Moran, a very nice guy, yeah. uh, would say, yes, but we can do that with iron. Yes, you can do that, but you can't reverse it. You can't revert, you can't, you've done it once. The whole point about the enzyme, the redox enzymes, and green rust is that you can, it's a seesaw, redox seesaw. You can go up and down, back and forth. And in fact, you can do things both ways. You can satisfy this disequilibrium as you satisfy that disequilibrium. Yeah. And, but then how do you connect uh, this understanding? So, of course, metabolism we can explain now, but then how we uh, connect this with the information part? Well, that's, I'm, you know, it's, that's... I've never tried to suggest that we can absolutely do that. I, I I welcome the fact that people realize that's it. But what they do tend to, uh, not not including you, is to say, "But that's it. That's the origin of life." You know, it's 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 not. You've got to get the system going. You can't. You know, it, we live in this computer age. You know, you'd think that you could take the engine out of my Subaru or whatever the hell it is. I don't have a car, by the way, but or my Prius, and the thing would still work. No, you need an engine, and you need to have an exhaust. You know, so if you see, uh, have you ever seen this? What's that famous program uh, about the Beverly Hill cops? And, uh, you know, and uh, the, the, the cop from Chicago uh, doesn't, doesn't want to be chased by the stupid Beverly Hill cops. So he sticks banana up their exhaust pipe. Because it's the exhaust that drives your car. Yeah. No, it's I mean. The exhaust I, I, that drives your car. If you're a rocket engineer, you know it's the exhaust. That drives the rocket, but people think that it's breakfast. No, it's not. 
It's going to the toilet. Then you have breakfast. I mean, roughly speaking. Yeah. No, in my case, I'm getting there. I'm I I'm just trying to get more explanations out of you. Of and then let's let's to try apologize. to put it together and see how to apologize. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> you know, people say, if only you talk slowly, Mike, but yeah. I can't, you know, this is what you know, this is it. Uh so you don't have to apologize at all. It's just I can't help talking like this. That's fine. That's fine. So uh, that's why I like it, living in Glasgow. <laughs> you could talk like this, you know, and about anything and nobody worry. Whereas in many societies, uh, you know, can't you be more polite, Michael? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but then uh, let's, let's kind of talk about, or what's your understanding about it? Um, like, starting from this uh, starting from metabolism point of view uh, let's well, say that we have the engines the and these mistake, engines the big mistake is to assume that lipids are come next you know we mm -hmm. don't lipids don't come next they wouldn't come next why would they they're too hard to make they don't do anything they're just a plastic bag as bill martin points out you know they don't and they 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 make things kind of move more easily it's going to be peptides the takeover from the iron sulfides and, and the iron oxyhydroxides is going to be peptide because the peptides can actually take in these macromolecules and look after them, like the P-loop can take in phosphate. You know, you can make it in the lab and it will take over phosphate. So this has been done by Bianchi and, uh, and Milner-White and so forth. Uh, and so if you're looking for a membrane, then the, the thing, to my mind, the best thing is take over a peptide amyloidal partly amyloidal peptide, that's your first membrane. And once you've got amyloid, then of course you've got to worry about, there is a little bit of information in amyloid. And amyloid can make other uh, peptides behave to some extent the way it wants to. So there is a certain amount of information there, perhaps building to better membranes. So, so to me, the, the, membrane, the, the stage is going from the ions, oxyhydroxide sulfide membrane, uh, to the peptide-supported membrane, the amyloidal membrane. And then, yes, somehow or other, we're going to have to get into uh, finding nucleotides. And I think that that's possible because maybe we can make uh, hydrazine at least from uh, as we reduce nitrate to nitrite and then into a, to a hydrazine. And maybe coming from hydrazine with phosphate and so forth, you can get towards some kind of nucleotide world. You will forgive me if I don't call it the RNA world, because I think that that's not a helpful, as most people who really are knowledgeable about this, most people think it's a dead duck. Uh, I mean, if you look at the really good papers on this, so people like Yoki, you know, that it, it, you can't do it. You can't start with an RNA world. But sometime you've got to get into nucleotides. I agree with that. And that's the big problem. And it's beyond me. But at least I think we can give you foundations. As uh, you might have read, you know, and the RNA world is like building the roof of the multi-story building first so that the workers don't get wet or sunburned. You know, it's ludicrous. You've got to start from the foundations. It's all there in uh, uh, Swift's tale about Lilliput. I know it and it's also like hard to conceive that there were only RNA molecules at a yeah. certain point of time, ludicrous. right? It's, there has to people be thinking, yeah. realizes it's ludicrous. It's only yeah. the people who don't think 
Yeah. But then, so uh, since you mentioned about the uh, membranes and I'm quite uh, also interested in membranes too, like, because it's, it's this kind of connection between uh, information and the membrane, which is, which oh. al always fascinates me. Absolutely. Right. Um, uh, so, um, and since you mentioned about the protein membranes and another thing uh, which has protein membranes in a way uh, is, uh, or are the viruses, right? So, yeah. So, so this kind of thing, like, do you, or do you have uh, some, some sort of view on that? Like, all I'd say it's a convergence, a kind of convergent evolution. You can do it. You know, you can make crystals out of these beautiful crystals out of these membranes. But I think that it's something that is there, that disequilibria in different circumstances can make the same stuff. And we don't have to look to a Darwinistic point where we, we go from a virus to life. I think that it's the other way around. That it, 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 to me, the viruses are decay products, but smart ones, and they use what's available, what's around. And of course, what's around is all this lovely protein that all this you and me are made of. Yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with Eugene Kunin, who is expert in the uh, evolution of viruses, and he um, he mentioned something interesting that whenever something or some sort of uh, information um, arises or emerges, uh, the, the the some sort of um, uh, parasitism in a way, it, sh it would emerge as well. So this kind of uh, hypothesis he has, uh, what do you think about that? Well, Eugene Conan, uh, after publishing with Bill Martin on the alkaline vent, no longer believes in that. So, uh, mm -hmm. so so we don't have assumptions. Kunin and I, or however famous he is, we don't have assumptions in common. He believes in surfaces, uh, fresh air, all that stuff. More of wet, dry, and wet cycles, or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or, you know, the guy. He's, he can't have ever been in the field. He can't have ever. You know, I mean, you don't have to be a geologist, but it's. But geologists, everybody knows at university, geologists have the most fun. And you can always join a geological out, uh, trip anytime you like. You know, people are always welcome you on geology. And the incredible thing is it gives you such a third dimension, a fourth dimension to the beauties of the countryside. But these people won't do that. They think they're safer in the lab drying something with a Bunsen burner. It's just, no, I have no, no, I mean, you have to have common considerations in mind. And I don't have those with Eugene Kunin, I'm afraid. Uh, but it was interesting how he jumped on the idea. Uh, you can see his paper with Bill Martin. I think uh, uh, you're, you, um, if you do read that paper, you must read the first sentence and wonder why they said it. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, uh, since you mentioned about the uh, protein membranes, I thought let's uh, like talk a little bit about that. But then still we need to have the, or need to have in in a way because uh, protein membranes, as in they are, I think, uh, less, um, they, they uh, limit the uh, exchange, right? So the exchange is not as good as uh, with the lipid membranes. And uh, hold on. The lipid membrane, what does it do? I mean, Jack Chostak says, oh, they just turn over. You know, I mean, come on. You know, that, that's got nothing to do with how life started, obviously. Uh, so, of course, it would be nice to have some oil for your engines, and you would like to have a nice cover to the engine. But I mean, the first car didn't have a cover. 
It just had an engine for Christ's sake and four wheels. No, to, we, we don't need, we don't need that cover. We need to, what we need, and it's not going to be very good, and of course we need to evolve ourselves out of it, but protein membrane and cell wall, by the way, uh, you know, if you can tell a difference in the emergence of life between the, pro, between the membrane and cell wall, I'm not sure one could, uh, then that's, that's a start. And then you've got to keep, you have to keep improving for all the different reasons. Partly, as Levin would say, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be able to take, take a surprise. You've got to be, yeah. that's evolution works through having to deal with a surprise. Yeah, or let me put, put it in this way. So I'm trying to kind of understand that how we um, go out of the hydrothermal vents where, I mean, of course, we have a nice. Out. You don't go out. Uh -huh. That's an ordinary assumption. Why should you go out? No, you go in and down. Of course you don't go out. It's a desert out there. I've never said it would go out. They, <clears throat> what happens is you can, the, the, mem, the, the edge, the boundaries of the alkaline spring uh, <clears throat> and mound are all important, okay? But eventually you've got to be able to deal with less de disequilibria. So there is an evolution towards dealing with less and less free energy. Uh, and eventually, uh, the only way out is down and down into the deep biosphere. So the first biosphere was a deep biosphere, which has kind of only been discovered in the last 40 years or so. Uh, but that's it. That's the deep biosphere. And everybody's glued into looking at the trees and, and the birds. But actually, of course, it's downwards. So you, you, you can occupy the deep biosphere. You're not doing very much for the uh, entropy generation, but you can occupy it for perhaps a billion years without having to worry about the surface. I'm not saying you did have to do it, but you could do it for a billion years until you get uh, until you can start to use the photons. And it's interesting to me that the way to use the photons is you can you can use something called it's a, a manganese oxyhydroxide with with a, you can change the, the manganese to four and so forth. And to my mind, that was the beginning of the uh, of the uh, uh, PS two uh, that the. So it's again, it's a mineral right in there, and you'll find some people are still kind of, still quite like that. Uh, in fact, there's a recent paper in PNS, I think it was, or not PNS, Nature even, saying that yeah, maybe this was, as we suggested, maybe it was a, a manganese material because manganese is so good at defending you from radiation because of its different redox states. You can defend you of radiation, and every now and then, if you've got, if you're out there, you're just an ordinary punter from the deep biosphere, and you've got uh, this this mineral up above you. It's a kind of anyway. Uh, forgive me, and it's terrible. I, it'll come anyway. So you've got this membrane. It's a layered, basically, uh, silicate oxyhydroxide. It's out there, and in comes the photons, the hard photons, and every now and then, it's protecting the and the. The, the micro, micro beneath, but every now and then he gets a free proton. It gets a, and uh, and it can make hydrogen and so forth in that system. So you could say that, and I would argue that minerals were significant even at that time. And then we can look at our skeletons and look at the at the different minerals making our skeletons and so forth. It's a 
It's the inorganic elements that bring organic chemistry to life. It's the inorganic elements that bring organic chemistry to life. Uh, as as, as uh, Williams might have said, but his, yeah. student, his student, student did say that. It's the inorganic elements that bring organic chemistry to life. And then you're starting to get under because the organic, the inorganic elements are everywhere, and the organic elements are very rare indeed, and they're in outer space, and they've got one part per trillion in a cubic meter of space. Yeah, I mean, I I was checking a few papers on hydrothermal vents and uh, the kind of biosphere that they have discovered, at least at the present time. So what do you think about that? Like the kind well, of- It works off the same. If you read the stuff by people like Boyd and uh, Alexis Templeton, Eric Boyd and Alexis Templeton, those people, uh, they've publishing papers now for the last five or 10 years, or five or six years, I should say, which shows you that they use the same, the same free energy available in the alkaline vent. It's just it's more reduced. It's not it's not it's not bountiful, but it's there. And of course, we know life will deal with all, you know it'll go go to all kinds of trouble to survive. So to me, that's no to go from the alkaline vent to the deep biosphere, which is serpentinizing because most of it's oceanic crust anyway, is no big deal. So you mean Luca also evolved there and then we kind of... Yeah, uh, exactly. It probably evolved. Well, I mean, how do I know? I don't know. But I, it probably evolved on the stages between the vent and the deep biosphere. Maybe to occupy the deep biosphere required uh, an information system which was basically uh, related to your, your, your uh, five and six-sided atoms, uh, uh, molecules. Yeah. Um, so um, let's let's kind of think in this way then, or uh, talk about the engineering part of the part of all of it, because I think this is where we can understand whether a theory really works or not. So uh, how about, uh, or how do you think that if, let's say I start working in, in the lab, trying to engineer life, uh, how I can use the information of, uh, alkaline hydrothermal vents that life emerging at, at in such kind of conditions to kind of um, um, to, to create life or have this kind of synthetic cells. Uh, uh, create a metabolizing system, maybe yeah. a small one. Uh, yeah. uh, a workable enzyme or two or three in a membrane. So, well, well because I would put those uh, nanocrystals or macromolecules, inorganic macromolecules in a peptide or amyloid pseudomembrane. And I'd use uh, synchrotron, uh, operon, uh, what are the, what's it called? Anyway, synchrotron techniques to, what, to watch ha what happens to the interlayers and the layers as you could fax reduce nitrate to ammonia or, or so forth. So in other words, you want to be able to show that the reactions that we can show do work, uh, which you could uh, say derogatorily that they are just chemistry and that the mineral is just a chemical, to show that in fact the mineral is more than a chemical and actually does 
and we know it can do this, by the way. So it actually even flex, partly flex and partly <clears throat> depending, and we, we're not sure how much is the, in the flex and how much is in the, uh, basically the electrochemistry and uh, of the system that, that basically it, it could be that the, the electrochemistry of the system that really works. So let me just say, tell you one thing about green rust. It's, I think, really interesting. So it, it, you can take it as a six-sided. It doesn't grow very large because growing six sides, I believe, from the geometrists say it's hard to kind of keep on growing like that way. So it tends to keep on, what's the word, uh, nucleating. So you could keep on nucleating green rust. Okay, so you don't get a big one. You get millions of small ones. Nano to micro. And in those interlayers, you've got... Uh, for each ion, you have one or two water molecules, and they're bound to the oxygens. Okay, this ox oxy either the hydroxide or the water molecule itself. Okay, and it can and anions are soluble in there, so molybdate would be soluble in there. Uh, nitrate is soluble; they're all soluble. You could push them in if you've got a way of pushing them. Okay, and and so now they're constrained. So, you, so your water activity is incredibly low, just like for those poor people who do it with a Bunsen burner, green rust will do it by itself. Okay, it just squash it, squashes it in. And the fact that the electrons and the proton, the electrons are buzzing this way and maybe the protons are going this way or being dragged along by the electrons, laggardly dra dragged along, can make the things happen within that little, uh, not cylinder, but at least an analogy with the car cylinder. But one, so that's, so you've got something that's a 2D system. But of course, life likes to work at 1D, really. I mean, if you, you take the enzymes, they really like to, if, you know, for example, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the pipes that go in and out of the membrane, the, Sorry, I'm just so tired now, but the, 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 no, no, I'm going, otherwise I'll stop. Uh, the, the, uh, you, you just keep on helping me. The, 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 the uh, inter, inter relations between the outside and the inside of membrane are often linear. The ion channels, for example. Ion channels. Okay, thank you. So what about green rust? Well, green rust has got a particular structure whereby it's got three directions of the crystal to meet the six sides. And the three directions uh, allow uh, billions of electrons a second in one direction or that direction or that direction, but not in the other directions. So in other words, the, the actual, what's happening within the interlayer is one dimensional or can be forced into being one dimensional because you've got your uh, redox disequilibria and you've got oxidized this side, reduced this side, and that'll travel through as a, as a, as a redox front or an, either negative or positively. And you'll be changing the Fe2 pluses to a three pluses and maybe a four plus here and there uh, in that kind of very controlled way. Now, to me, that's information. You can't, you just, you, you're not in a test tube. You're not mixing chemicals. This is absolutely directed, and people haven't picked up on that. You know, they, uh, I mean, what's not to like about green rust? I mean, really. So yeah, yeah so, and if you're doing that, yes. Uh, 
get get somebody with a synchrotron to and do your experiments operon style the synchrotron and that's obviously that is obviously next uh, to my mind so for you the information would be this production of um, let's say uh, the, these compounds through the through the green rust yes because uh, they are they would be somewhat particular and if, if you take somebody like Schreer from long ago the idea that you know basically the enzymes the way enzymes are they they work in a kind of long you know what there's this proper word metallobomes or whatever you want to call them you know that one enzyme after another after another and all string together so they can all help each other out so to speak even sideways uh and of course green rust can do that because you can change the redox along the green rust so you can have more than one reaction happening within the green rust you can go from nitrate to nitrite to ammonium to uh aminate something all in the same channel it's like the like this electron transport chain yes exactly it's an yeah. electron transport chain and it yeah. is a chain because you are restricted to i mean so th there's the thing is a kind of you could think of it as a wheel if you like the six-sided mineral but if you happen to be it's almost certainly going to be lined up one way or another so just probably only one of those channels will be operating maybe two but probably one and and uh, and i suspect self-organization or self-ordering will make sure that channel is the one that's used and will because it's working so well that'll be the channel that'll be the channel and can we also reverse it yes that's the wonder of it it's redox and and it's not just reversible redox reversible but it depends on the ph so the ph can change the redox i mean jesus interesting. Christ. It's, it's interesting why do people why do they say no i mean why don't they look into it yeah so let's say if we design a robot where we uh of course we can use uh you know green rust for example but then still we want to go to a system which would be able to replicate and stuff right yes so so how uh, or what do you think about the replication part? Uh, look, I've I've come to the end of my knowledge in a way, all, and and all one and I don't want to kind of go much further than this, but I could point you to papers by Arrhenius that remind us that, or or I would look to what's what's the uh, the, the those those looms? You remember those first looms uh, the French invented in eighteen forty. Uh, yeah, Yakum, Yakum, you know, you know what they basically I, they were computers, and, and everybody says how wonderful the fellow was to design the first computer. You could say the first computer was a loom. So basically, you could think of the green rust in. You could. I, I'm not. You are asking a question. Open question. This is an open answer. I'm not. I'm not trying to sell this, but it is interesting that the. If you look at the the Fe two plus three plus uh, items within a green rust and how they change, then it looks very similar to a loom. Uh, you know, an automatic loom. Uh, and yeah, that was really, to my mind, not the abacus, but that was the first computer that could spin spin your own cloth. And how about uh, creating an artificial alkaline hydrothermal vent? In sure, the, the why not? Look, they spend billions and billions going to Mars to look for life. Why don't you spend a few million on making a hydrothermal vent? 
or even enclosing one. I mean, I think the, you know, there was. Uh, it's for least, the young people now. At least I came across one news where they uh, they mentioned that in MIT they are already trying to make this uh, some sort of artificial hydrothermal vent. Sure. Um, uh, I I don't know like how. There'd be a bit, well, if, if they're the MIT people I'm thinking of, they don't like green rust. They don't like, uh, you know, these kind of ideas. But they, they've taken the vent. Well, thank goodness. I mean, it's pretty damn obvious now. Yeah. I mean, if even if it starts, it can uh, kind of grow uh, maybe in a few decades, right? Uh, it's also, I oh, think, the... They should be able to do it. No, you can do this thing fast. I mean, it's not... It won't take a few decades. If you, All you need is some young people who are, who are brave and uh, have enough money and not, a, and not too many bosses to get on with it, not to make a name for themselves, but to just do it. Yeah, I mean, the, there is certainly something there. So uh, I think that that will really, uh, if people follow it, uh, it'll be really great. Yeah, well, you uh, seem to want to. Uh, I, I, uh, that's the thing. Like, I also need to find a lab and stuff after finishing my PhD. So oh. I, it's, it's just designing a project or writing a project, right? Okay, so, so, so you're, you'll be, you'll be a, my, my correspondent then, will you? Uh, why not? You're my <laughs> correspondent. Why not? Why not? Oh. That, that, definitely. I mean, if, if there is a, if there is something and if I can really write a oh. project with something, why not? I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm definitely looking for, uh, different systems that people are exploring here in Germany or in Netherlands, in Delft, for example, I could find that people are um, using these microfluidic chambers, for example, to construct uh, some sort of um, um, artificial systems. Yeah. So I'll, I, I, I have invited uh, some of those guys as well. Uh, uh, and uh, in next few months, I'll have those conversations as well to to kind of see what, what they are exploring in a way. Um, who've done it so far. I'm sorry? I've got the people who've done this so far yeah. are kind of tied up with the iron sulfide idea. And they're, and they're not too keen on the green rust. There is a few papers like I think what Julian Cartwright, I think, has been doing some stuff in uh, mm -hmm. Spain uh, mm -hmm. on this. I think Laurie Barge has started, or Steinbach in uh, in Florida. We'll, we'll talk on email. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so uh, maybe at the end, uh, let's let's kind of uh, I don't know conclude with a story or something that you can tell <laughs> about. Uh, about like your interest, uh, I mean, you already mentioned um, about origin of life and how it came about hydrothermal vents, etc. But your interest in academia itself, like how how you can or let's try to end it at a positive note and see. Uh, <laughs> well, positive the whole time. Hey, of course, of course, it was positive. But the but the thing is that um, I mean, I or at least from uh, my communication side, I really like to highlight the challenges that which is there in academia and science, and that that it's not like we can just go through it. We need to spend a lot of time to kind of get these ideas. There are a lot of challenges, uh, but then if you are still interested and you want to address some something, well, because no, because. <laughs> If you think about the great Indian scientists and mathematicians, okay, 
And then you think of the great European scientists of the 17th, uh, 18th and 19th century. Where was academia? Yeah, it, 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 it wasn't there, simply. It wasn't there. Yeah. So generally, academia and the great and the good are basically showing what doesn't work. So there's been 120,000 papers on the origin of life so far. And that, what they're telling us, I think, is that that doesn't work. And, and so, what, so what academia is for is it keeps everything spinning round and round, but not to much, in, to not much effect. Uh, but if you want to have an effect for it, it tells you what not to do. So I'll tell you a short story. It's not a very pleasant one, <clears throat> but it's the way I see the world. And that is the information comes in a microsecond. It's uh, from a far from equilibrium system, it comes in a microsystem. And that's how we think. And that's how we really think. You know, we, do, we don't plan. Of course we don't plan. You don't plan to think. Suddenly something pops out. So my story, in one of my stories, is that uh, when I was a young student, I was pretty, I could get, I got pretty drunk one night, okay? And I got off the train uh, in the station and I was so drunk that as I got off the train and walked around the station, I started walking back towards the moving train, which was gonna obviously do away with me. And in those days, you had a guard on the train and the end of the guard, the guard on the train. Now, I don't know if you play soccer, but to me, this was a, what he said was, use your left. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. And so I started to walk the other way. To me, that's inspiration. And that's a gift. And he wasn't an academic. He saved my life. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. No, that's that's true. I mean, we can't uh, we can't give uh, a lot of credits to the academia alone or uh, scientists alone. The engineers. One thing that went to one amazing thing to me when working at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Yeah. Uh, I went to York back in England. We went for a holiday in England and went to uh, the York Railway Station Museum or the York Railway Museum. And it tells you all about, you know, Stevenson's rocket and all this kind of stuff. It's fascinating. But what was quite clear and admitted there was that it was sometimes the firemen and the engine drivers that designed the new machines. Because one in a hundred or one in a thousand of those engineers just got it. They just knew how it did. You know, when who was the, the, the great man that built all those wonderful bridges, beginning with B, from a French name? Anyway, he built. What did he? What he was asked to do, do this fantastic bridge. I have to try and think about which bridge it was. So, the, so what he did was he he went to bed for two days, and after then he got up and he built the got the bridge built. You know, some people just just have a set. You know, David Beckham is a great physicist. Okay, and I admit I'm a Brit. You know, and and uh, so I like David Beckham, and and he could bend it. Okay, that's physics. It's just physics, and he just did it and did it and did it. Don't tell me he's the ignorant man. You know, he, he, it's the, the computing power that goes into scoring a goal from 30 meters when you've got that much room to get into. That's genius in the true sense of the word. 
So to me, that's that's the way the world works. That's why I like to consort with the artists and the philosophers and uh, pe people down the pub. You just never know. But it doesn't come from top table because they've got a rut and they're not going to get out of it because they're doing just nicely. Thank you. Yeah, true. I mean, I have so many things to say, but maybe uh, we we are going now for about a couple of hours. So, um, um, the 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 only thing that I can say is, or the way I think, because I started thinking about this thing uh, for quite a long, and um, my I I have like these kind of conversations with one of my colleague, and uh, she's always like, um, and we. We we are always like that. Okay, no, we we don't really need this kind of hierarchy, this kind of academia, this kind of system, etc. But the only thing is that we, um, as in like apes in general, we see that there is this kind of uh, teaching thing, right? We we teach to to the next generation, and it's like, um, so if we have hierarchy in a way, uh, in terms of the experience. So now let's say if I uh, if I'm starting my career and if I disagree with with everything, like with you, for example, okay, uh, things will not move so fast as well. But on sure. the other hand, if we are, if we partially agree and disagree, uh, we can kind of go along at some point, and we we can kind of work together in in a way, right? There's a hundred so, people in your class, and one of them is listening. Uh huh. You just have to spot that person and talk to them privately. Yeah. The rest aren't serious. No, human beings aren't really serious. <laughs> and you can see it on the street, you know, they're just not, not serious. Just every now and then somebody, it matters to some people, you know, and often that, uh, <clears throat> you know, they got the wrong kind of politics or some such because they care. So, it, so it, it's just come back down to caring. Uh, so good scientists care, to my mind, uh, and they care about everything, just about. They can't they can't do everything, but they can they can have a sense they can be empathic to what's going on in the world uh, and realize that engineer. Well, you know, it's rather like jazz. So, you know, everybody. So I'm, I'm a jazz freak. I love jazz. OK, so and all the jazz people I know that, you know, the trumpeters and the saxophonists and so on. I dig these guys. I mean, I really do. To be able to do that, it's fantastic. I'm good audience, but I can't play. But guess, I mean, this is a dangerous conversation, this bit, but guess who's the smartest, in general, who's the smartest guy in the band, in IQ? Who? The drummer. He's got to hold <laughs> it all together. He's got to catch all the different rhythms that's going on. Uh, he, he can't, you know, he, he's really got it, man. I mean, you know, the others have just got this one line. I mean, or two, if you're some crazy jazz guy and play two instruments at once or, and so on. I mean, of course, those people exist, but, you know, to be able to keep it all together. And they were the, the great drummers to me, you know, and to me, that uh, the great jazz drummers, uh, they were my heroes when I was young. Well, they still are. I'll tell you about one or two of them who I met someday. Sure. Okay, so with that, uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing your uh, experience, your ideas, your science, and uh, also, you know, giving this framework, which I think it can help a lot of people in general uh, science. Uh, and uh, I hope someday we'll have that uh, chapter one of the biology. 
you know, you know, sorry to interfere right at the last moment. No. Maybe chapter one's almost written, and maybe it's chapter two. Chapter two, I mean, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. that's where you guys lie. Yeah. Chapter two, I would say. Sure. Make it, but you need to have chapter one to make chapter two, and then this is it. Yeah. So, best wishes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Of course.